Good morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we thank you, God, that we get to worship and gather here together on this Sunday morning. Lord, as we continue our time in worship this morning, we pray that you would be with us as your word is preached. We pray, Father, that you would sanctify us by thy truth. Your word is truth. And may we give you glory for it in Christ. Amen. Uh, let's open our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. For this morning, we will be looking closely at verses 7 through 14. And the, t- the title of today's message is A New Way to Love. As you will remember, the writer here is none other than the Apostle John. His audience, in particular, was likely a small congregation in a city called Ephesus, located in an area we would know today as uh, modern-day Turkey. Now, two things that we can easily point out about John is that he was a son of thunder, as Jesus described him in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, and He is known as the Apostle of Love, and this is how the church has always known him, because of the remarkable way he emphasized the love of God throughout his writings, in particular the gospel concerning the life and ministry of our Lord. Now the purpose for which he wrote was twofold, to warn his readers against the false teaching of Gnosticism. Now this was a heretical view that denied the true humanity and atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, a view that completely denied the biblical doctrine of original sin and its consequences of eternal damnation in a place called hell. These false teachers were causing the believers in this Ephesian church to waver in their assurance. And John, being the apostle of love and the son of thunder that he is, He steps in to denounce these false teachers and reassure his beloved of their salvation that they have in Christ. He does this repeatedly throughout the letter, and it is no different here. So beginning in verse 7 down to 14, I want you to follow along as I read 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment, that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong 
and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. Now, the sum and substance of all that John has to say here to assure his uh, readers is love. That is the theme. The theme is love. Love as it relates to the commandment of God and love as it relates to what it inevitably produces in the life of the true believer. The beloved are the believers to whom John is writing, and the form of love that he uses to describe them in the original Greek is a term agape. They are more than just friends to John. They are family. But even more than that, they are John's spiritual progeny. I'm writing to you, little children, verse 12. Now, the intensity of this verb cannot be overstated or overlooked. John's beloved are his agape, those whom he loves dearly. In fact, it would be helpful to note that agape is the same kind of love that God the Father has for God the Son. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 26, And I have made your name, that is the Father's, known to them. And, I, and will continue to make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be with them and I in them. This is the love that John is communicating to his readers and his audience. This title for, for them was so appropriately used, Beloved. And this is exactly the theme that John sets forth in verses 7 through 14. Now this morning, as we go through this passage, we will see three things in particular with regards to love. We will see love described, we will see love expressed, and we will see love fully matured. So love described, love expressed, and love fully matured. Let's begin with love described. Verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now John begins by first describing love as an old commandment. It is the word that you have heard, he says. Something they would have already known to be true, something that they would have, that would have been crystal clear in their minds and wouldn't need, even need an exposition. Only a simple reminder, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. That's it. John didn't need to expound or explain anything else by saying that. Now, we have to understand that the New Testament had not yet been fully composed or written. Sure, there were inspired letters being sent and passed around to the churches at that time by the Apostle Paul, James, Peter, and John. But they were not fully compiled into what we hold in our hands today as the New Testament. So this old commandment that they would have heard and would have known from the beginning was something that was revealed to them in the Old Testament scripture. It was an old or prior commandment that came from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, a uh, verse that's very familiar to many of us, where it reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
It also encompassed Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where God said to Israel, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In fact, when Jesus was being barraged by the false religious leaders of his day with questions intended only to trap him, one of the Pharisees outright asked him in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and following, he asked him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answered him, quoting Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the commandment that John is emphasizing here is first and foremost a love for God. This is the greatest of all commandments that we have in the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. This kind of love for God will inevitably produce obedience to all other commandments, including the commandment to love the sons of your own people, your neighbors, and to love them as yourself. Whoever keeps his word, John says in the beginning of chapter 2 of 1 John, this, this letter that he wrote in verse 4, he says, in him truly the love of God is perfected. This, of course, is to be understood as a love for God that has been granted to the believer through the finished work of Christ. A love for God that is expressed through obedience. If you love me, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, you'll keep my commandments, he said. And the greatest of those commandments is to love God. And the second is like it. Love for the sons of your own people, your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the old commandment that they have heard from the beginning. And an old commandment found in the pages of Scripture and even emphasized by our Lord here. Yet in verse 8, an interesting thing happens. John also describes love as a new commandment. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So at this point, you say, wait a minute, John. You, you just said it's not a new commandment, but here you're saying that it is a new commandment. So which one is it? And the answer is, it's both. It's both. While the old commandment to love is nothing new, at the same time, John says it is new. He is revealing something to these believers that they would have otherwise missed. This commandment is new in a sense of its depth and extent and fullness thereof. Loving God and loving others took on a whole new meaning when Jesus, the Son of God, stepped into his creation. Through the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ on the cross, they saw and we see love fully expressed and eternally 
manifested as the Father poured out his eternal wrath on his Son in the place of all those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4. All who would ever believe upon him throughout the course of human history. And all for whom Jesus died for specifically were the ones chosen by the Father in eternity past who would be the ones who would eventually believe. That is the meaning of propitiation as, as it relates to the work of Christ. And this is what John means by the statement, which is true in him. Although the Old, Test- Old Commandment to love was stated, it was in a sense veiled until it was manifested and fully realized in the incarnate Son of God. When he stepped into his creation to seek and save those who are lost, Luke 19.10. This new commandment, this perfect manifestation of love is true in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, our advocate, our propitiation. But it is also true in you, John says, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, it is true in us because we are in Christ, verse 5 of this chapter. And if we say that we abide in him and he in us, we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, verse 6 of this chapter. We're to be as the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ, that shines in this dark world. And indeed, if we truly belong to Christ, truly abide in him, And he and us, Jesus is already shining. And he's shining through his saints and the gospel that we preach. Brothers and sisters, the kind of life that we live and the kind of love that we have for one another bears witness to a watching world that we are and we do belong to Christ. The true light is already shining through our our life and ministry to others. And John goes on to say the darkness is passing away. As the return of Christ draws near, Scripture tells us in 2 Peter 3 that the darkness will one day be gone forever and replaced by new heavens and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. The darkness is passing away. It has not prevailed because Christ has triumphed over it in his resurrection. Until then, beloved, we are to live out this new commandment to love. In his upper room discourse in John chapter 13, verses 33 to 35, after washing his disciples' feet in a total act of humility, Our Lord said, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And here it is, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. So the mark of a genuine Christian, a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, is his or her love not only for God, although everything starts there, but his or her love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. That love for one another. A love that resembles the sacrificial love of Christ marked by humility. The kind of love that would bring us down to the level of a slave in order to serve our brothers and sisters with joy in the lowest possible of ways. The kind of love that would be demonstrated when it's most undeserved by a brother or sister in Christ. So this is love described as something they would have always known and heard from the Old Testament scripture and something they would have now internalized and fully realized through the new covenant of Christ's shed blood on the cross. This is the old, fully revealed and made manifest in the new. And you're either going to be a brilliant reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ and shine forth his glory by loving God and loving others, or you're going to be one who abides or remains in darkness. Which takes us to point number two, love expressed. Look at verse 9 through 11 with me. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Pretty straightforward, right? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. He goes on to say, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So without any hesitancy and in no uncertain terms, John makes a crystal clear statement that is black and white. There was nothing ambiguous about what John was saying here. It's perfectly clear. If you are not fulfilling the commandment to which you are called to love God and those whom you claim are your brothers and sisters in Christ, you simply do not know God. That's what John is saying. Words without action are useless. Whoever says he is in the light and yet hates his brother does not possess the love of God in him or herself. You do not love. And if you do not love, then the only other option is to hate. It's a cut and dry statement, clear as night and day, as light and darkness. John even gives us an example of what true love actually looks like. Whoever loves his brother abides or continues and remains in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Meaning that those who truly love their brothers and sisters in Christ will never do anything to cause them to stumble into sin. That's what John is getting at here. They will even lay down every liberty and freedom they have in Christ so as to never cause one of these little ones, a term Christ used to describe 
believers in Matthew uh, chapter 18, verse 6, to stumble. There were various examples that John could have used to exemplify what true love is, but he chose this one in particular because it was the epitome of what true love is. That is to sacrifice one's own desires for the betterment of another. Love is sacrificial. And he also chose this particular example because he was addressing the early rise of the false teaching of Gnosticism, which, as a reminder, taught that it didn't matter if you sinned against God or other people uh, or even against your own flesh. They taught that it didn't matter what you did with your physical body because your soul was pure and so you were fine to live as you pleased. John says no. Whoever loves his brother abides in Christ. And far be it from any one of us that we should ever cause any of Christ's own to stumble into sin. Even more, Christ's warning to these Gnostics and all who deny the doctrine of sin is that it would be better for them to have tied a large millstone around their neck and be drowned into the depths of the sea than cause one of these little ones, meaning believers, to stumble into sin. You're better off doing that. John then reiterates the point in verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, that is, follows a normal course of life, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, non-believers cannot fulfill the great commandment to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, and strength. And they certainly cannot fulfill the command to love their neighbor as themselves. Not because they don't have enough insight um, or they're not smarter than the next person, but it's because they're spiritually blinded. They walk and live in spiritual darkness. And only Jesus, the true light, who is already shining through his word and the preaching of his saints, can rescue them out of this darkness. Before we move on to point number two, or point number three in, the, in our text, I, I want you to take a moment to ask yourself the question, in light of Christ's saying, love one another just as I have loved you, and in light of all that John has to say here, I want you to ask yourself the question, how am I doing in my expression of love towards other Christians? How am I doing in my humility towards others? How am I doing in loving Christ? Are you giving up every freedom that you have because you don't want to ever cause another believer to stumble into sin? Do you care more about your glory than the glory of God and in your own personal desires or preferences in life rather than what God has called you to do? Or are you so caught up in yourself that you proudly say, like, I don't care. They just need to grow up. Not my problem that something that God doesn't call sin, they can't handle. It's not my problem. Brothers and sisters, John 
and the Word of God is saying it is your problem. And that is something that we need to take seriously as believers when it comes to other brothers and sisters in Christ who are able or unable to to handle a, a certain type of situation. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, to the least of these brothers of mine that you have done it unto, you've done it unto me. So the way that we treat other brothers and sisters in Christ is exactly the way that we treat Jesus. We wouldn't take treating Jesus lightly, and we shouldn't take treating our brothers and sisters in Christ lightly either. So how you answer these questions matters a lot. And it may even well determine if you are continuing or abiding in Christ. How you answer will either give you great assurance of your salvation, or it will cause you to do a well-needed self-evaluation of your faith. If, I, if you say, I don't love my brothers and sisters enough to not cause them to, to stumble into sin, then it could even be a question of whether or not you are in the faith. And that's how serious it is. But if you are truly in the faith, you will be someone who is abiding in love, as it is described by the great commandment here. And in abiding in that love described, you will be someone who demonstrates it toward God and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you will also be someone who matures in Christ over time. Which brings us to the final point here, love matured. John goes on to say in verses 12 through 14, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So anything or anyone that is alive will grow, right? That's, that's the basic fundament, fundamental reality of life. If there's life, the natural assumption is that whatever is alive will grow. Now just as God provides for and sustains all that has physical life, he also is the one who provides for and sustains all that possesses spiritual life. We know that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. We know that man cannot do any amount of good works to earn his way into heaven, Galatians 2, 16. We know that all those who have received the right to become children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor even of the free will of man, but of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. We also know, based upon what the scripture says, that life comes to those who repent and believe. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. 
It is a free gift from God, lest any man should boast. And those who have placed their faith alone in Christ alone have their sins forgiven. Their sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103.12 And having their sins forgiven, the recipients of this letter have the right to be addressed as little children. That's why John addresses them as little children. In fact, everyone sitting here today who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ have received forgiveness and have been given the right to be called children of God, to be called little children of God. We, like they, have been forgiven. Past tense. It is a one-time, irrevocable act, and it cannot ever be lost because it is something that has been granted to us and given to us by God, who's not going to revoke his promise of eternal life. Now, despite the onslaught of the false teaching these believers were under, John reassured them that nothing would ever separate them from the love of God that is found only in Christ Jesus. Because as I said, once salvation is granted to us by God, it will never be removed because it is something that was accomplished for his name's sake, not ours. The love for which he had loved us and gave his only begotten son so that all who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life was to the praise and glory of God. It was for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, for his name's sake, John says. Life is given by God, the Holy Spirit, from above because of his abundant love for which he had loved us. Anyone who has received this life has been given the right to become a child of God. And as I have already pointed out, anyone who possesses life will inevitably grow. They will mature. John goes on to show us that here in verse 13, kind of at the uh, end of verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, it is important to point out that in the Greek, um, the word for children in this verse is different from the Greek word for little children in verse 12. In verse 12, little children, or technia in the Greek, refers to all those who are in the family of God already. All who have been forgiven of their sins for his name's sake. It's a general statement that encompasses a child of any age or maturity level. Here in verse 13, the Greek word for children is paedia, different from technia. Completely different. This is in reference to age or maturity level. A young child still under the care of his or her parents, we can say. This, of course, is the first stage of anyone who has been given the gift of eternal life. They are babes in Christ. They are children, in a sense, who know the Father. However, just as all children, they also lack a certain level of discernment, which makes them vulnerable to false teachers, to wolves in sheep's clothing. And this is why we receive such a strong warning in Scripture 
where it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are spurned on to spiritual maturity because of the dangers that lie ahead. There is false teaching to be had at every corner of the globe, from false ideologies to cults to other false religions. We must, as a command, press on to spiritual maturity. This isn't an option for somebody who comes to faith in Christ. And if there is truly eternal life abiding in us, we will continue to grow. There's no other option from that. You don't, you know, a baby doesn't uh, get born and then not grow, just stays an infant the rest of its life. It doesn't happen that way. And it doesn't happen that way, uh, spiritually speaking, as well. So John takes us to the next stage of growth that we will experience in our lives as Christians, and that is of spiritual young men and women. Middle of verse 12, verse 13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So the second stage of spiritual growth is a sound understanding of biblical truth and a strong conviction in the Word of God. They have moved on from the fundamentals of the faith, we can say, to being firmly grounded in the truth of God's Word. They have gone on from drinking milk as spiritual children to feasting on the meat of the Word as spiritual young men and women. That is why it says they have overcome the evil one. They are no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The evil one, of course, refers to Satan, and he primarily operates in the deception of false religions. Young men and, and women in the faith with regards to spiritual maturity have overcome his lies and deceptions. They are vigilant. They can refute error and rightly handle the word of truth. As all believers are actually called to in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. But of course, it doesn't stop here. Mere knowledge only puffs up and is useless if it is not applied in terms of making us more like Christ, which brings us to the third stage of spiritual maturity. In verse uh, 13 and 14, beginning of, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. This is where believers go from merely knowing the word of God to actually living it out. Their spiritual maturity is marked by those who know God. Because you know him who is from the beginning, John says. Not just know a lot about him, just kind of like the facts of the Bible, but know him in, a, in, in the sense of living out what you know. In our Christian life, we all 
know certain things, and we all grow at different levels. But I think that our goal as Christians needs to be applying what we know. Because there's kind of like this gap that exists between what we know and what we apply. And for some, maybe a lot of us, the gap is really wide, and our goal is to, to tighten that gap and, and make it as narrow as possible in terms of our obedience and walk with Christ. Knowledge without application is useless. It's pointless to spend hours and hours studying the Bible and systematic theology and all this if you're not going to apply it to your life. So love for God and love for his people matures over time. It starts at the level of a child, a little child, progresses to the level of a young man or woman, and then moves to the level of a spiritual parent. And one day, it will culminate into perfection when we enter into glory, where we will love God and those whom we will spend an eternity with forever. And and we'll love them perfectly. And that's the key there. So in closing, we have seen love described as an old commandment that was fully realized in the new commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and to love your brothers and sisters in Christ as yourself. So you say, how though? How, how do I um, practically do that? Well, first and foremost, if you are sitting here and are not a Christian, your first step is repenting of your sin and placing your faith in, uh, and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. There is no other way to heaven except through the Lord Jesus Christ, and except through faith alone in him alone. You need to lay down your life and believe upon him, and he will grant you the forgiveness of your sins. But he will also grant you an ability to fulfill this new commandment that he talks about where you can love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as yourself. Secondly, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, pray for humility. Make that the one primary pursuit of your life. Because your love will be directly improportionable to, to how humble you are, to your humility. That was Jesus' whole point in the upper room discourse when he stooped down to wash the disciples' feet. And in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it reminds us that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is the ultimate reflection of Jesus. And if we are to be more like him, then it ought to be something we seriously strive for in our own lives. Okay, so we then saw the kind of love um, expressed by never doing anything to cause our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble into sin, even to the degree where we are willing to lay down certain liberties that we have in Christ in order to avoid doing damage to another believer's conscience, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
And lastly, we saw love fully matured. In God's love, he sent his son to die on the cross. For all of those who have ever turned away from their sin and placed their faith in him. And in God's love, he poured forth his spirit within us so that we could grow to be more like Christ. So if you are truly alive in Christ, you will see a natural progression and growth in your life as a believer. And this is the assurance that John gives the readers here, and this is the assurance that John gives us today. Love for God and love for his people is something that we as believers ought to desire and ought to be pursuing on a day-to-day basis. Let's pray. Father, as we end our time in worship of you, O Lord, we pray that the truths that come from your word will truly be implanted into our hearts. Lord, we don't want to just know more of your word, and certainly that is true. We do want to know more. But God, we want to apply the things that we know. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us indeed apply all that has been taught here today. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to grow us and mature us so that we will reflect Jesus more and more and shine his light into the world that we live in. And we just pray and ask all of this in his precious name. Amen.